Welcome to The Build Up. I'm Kirk Penrod. And I'm Arielle Cass. We cover real estate for Cranes Detroit Business. Together, we're launching this podcast to give you the inside scoop on commercial real estate. We'll be bringing in experts from across the industry to offer their perspectives on the biggest issues they face today and what challenges they expect for the future. This is The Build Up. Since returning to Detroit in 2008, Richard Hosey has been among the most active developers and public servants in the city. Most recently, the owner of Hosey Development LLC and his development partners unveiled a proposal to redevelop the former Fisher Body 21 plant into apartments, a project touted as the largest Black-led development in the city. But he has also been instrumental in the transformation of the Capitol Park neighborhood, along with his development partner, Richard Karp. And in between redeveloping old buildings, he finds time to serve on several boards, including the Downtown Development Authority, Historic District Commission, Detroit Land Bank Authority, the Downtown Business Improvements on Board, and Detroit Housing Commission. Richard, thank you for joining us on the Bill. Thank you for having me here. So obviously your biggest project right now is the Fisher 21, which I think uh, it's fair to say is probably going to be an uphill battle, ranging from size, location, amount of deterioration in the building. What makes you so confident that this project is, uh, is you know, going to hit the ground running and get completed and what's the latest on it? Uh, thanks. Uh, so I, prior to moving back home, I got a chance to, to work on different projects all around the country. Um, and, and uh, working on projects this, this size um, in, in places even smaller in, in Baltimore and New Orleans, um, and seeing them work, seeing how how to turn these factories uh, um, into into residential housing or commercial of of some sort, there was always the question of why can't we do it here? We have you know just as many people, if not more. We have uh, um, excitement, and so so the the concept was always viable. Then it's just is the building is the building viable? And so we we investigated that. We found that. Uh, that the deterioration wasn't sufficient to, to stop the project. I mean, you know, those things that had cost, um, the environmental wasn't sufficient to stop the project. There are solutions there with the tax increment financing. Um, and so so the, the numbers added up and, and it, it, we wanted to show what could be done. And as we mentioned, it's the largest Black-led development ever in the city. Can you talk a little bit about why that's important? So I think, um, but in all cities, certainly, but particularly in this city where there's such a a, a large um, percentage of, of the population uh, who are African-American or people of color, people certainly want to know that um, they don't just want to be able to kind of celebrate the ability to see the city uh, redone. They want to participate and, um, and they want to know kind of that the doors are wide open all on the path. And, and so... I think being able to demonstrate that and um, and setting this up once you do something, then it becomes normalized. And so, you know, there was a time when a downtown project of a hundred units seems amazing and and you know <laughs> inaccessible, and uh, and now people take that for absolute granted. And and by doing this, um, making this a, a standard or normal thing, we hope to see a, a lot more people of color. As well as developers of, of you know of all stripes uh, coming in and saying you know what four hundred units makes sense and uh, and this is how you do it. What is it about historic preservation that's appealing to you that you think is is worth doing? 
So I, I think it's is it's this um, coming together of economic incentive and and kind of architectural wow factor. And so we would never <laughs> build a, a, an apartment complex with 13 foot ceilings. You know, it's just inefficient. It costs so much more. And, and so when you think of 13 foot ceilings, you think of uh, some mansion, right? Um, where cost is no object. But if you have a building that already has 13 foot ceilings, <laughs> then people get to have this, this incredible wow factor um, um, based upon what was already there. And the, the federal historic tax credit, uh, especially when combined with a state historic tax credit or, um, or other incentives, it, it brings that extra cost of that ceiling being so high or there being some environmental cleanup or things along those lines back in the line with new construction. And, and people love the space. And so I think, you know, there are the people who love the space, there are the people who love the history, and then there are the developers who may love both, but they certainly uh, can see the economic advantage of having uh, this this well-worn process involved in, in restoring a building. So where do you fall? Are you a space, history, or economics person? <laughs> so I started out solely economics 25 years ago. I was like, okay, I don't get it. You know, I like new construction, but I saw the, the incentive. And then slowly, as I <laughs> looked around, I said, huh. This is a really nice place. This is kind of amazing to have a ten foot window in a, you know, five hundred square foot uh, studio apartment. And so, you know, and, and and then I got on board with the actual aesthetics of it and the things that the architects could do. So now I think I hit all all, all the sizes. <laughs> it money ec economic viability. Uh, throw these completely off the table. Is there one building in town that hasn't yet been? taken on and, and repurposed aside from Fisher 21, obviously that you think is ripe for it. And you'd like to do like, what, what would be your dream Detroit building to do? So it's, you know, it's, I would have loved to uh, uh, have seen a, a really coherent um, long-term thought out process for the backer plan to be able to do something like that um, would have been great. Um, so actually in my first job down in New Orleans, in, in 97, I believe, we tried to come up in the, and save the Hudson Building. And so I always think of that one. We presented, a, but, you know, I was with a, a New Orleans firm. Um, they were considered outsiders. We were like, you can't do this. You can't save too many of the square feet. You can't put that in the middle of Detroit. And, and we were convinced that we could um, and kind of had it lined up. So always think about that building. If there were no boundaries, not even time or demolition, then that would be the number one. But, the one that got away. Right, exactly. But, uh, you know, I would have loved to see someone have a solid plan for mothballing and stabilizing the, the Packer plant um, and then slowly bringing it online um, in a way that, that had economic viability, but a 20-year plan. Back to the economic viability side of things. Right. <laughs> um, obviously, Fisher 21 and Capital Park and others still require many different layers of financing. It's a um, many-tiered cake to get these things out of the ground and um, across the finish line. Um, are there any other types of financial incentives um, that are needed to grease the skids on, on development projects in Detroit that, that don't currently exist or, or have been since wiped from the books? 
Yeah, so I, I would love to see the, the state historic tax credit come back um, in full force. You know, it's come back in principle, um, but it, it's significantly smaller than than is necessary and, and what used to be there. I think it, it really got kind of tied up in the concept of uh, some other credits that people had uh, less confidence in. And, um, and so I would love to see that come back. The thing about having buy right incentives is um, is that it gives that certainty for developers of, of all levels. And so if you have something that has to be allocated and awarded, then there's always that uncertainty. Am I spending a lot of money hoping that I'll, I'll get this award and then it doesn't happen and and I'm just taking this risk and, uh, and it not turned out? If you have something that says, uh, which is how the federal historic tax credit goes, if you do this, the prescribed methods, you get the credit. And so you can get in there and say, I am going to do these prescribed methods. I'm going to stay, you know, straight down the fairway. And I know that this incentive will be there at the end. And so the state historic tax credit, when it was like that, was a really powerful uh, tool because you could start planning. You could go out, think about acquiring your building. You could lay it out. You could make those expenditures up front and take those risks knowing what would be coming on on the back end if you followed the, the actual rules. What challenges are there to development in Detroit that you haven't seen in other cities? I think um, it's, it's and I almost don't want to call it a challenge. It's, 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 a, um, it's an important part of the process. I think in other cities, there is very little concern for the, the concept of gentrification. Um, there's very little concern about the idea of, of affordability and accessibility <laughs> until until it's way down the path and people go, wait, there's no place for teachers to live. Everything's $4,000 an apartment. And so having those conversations here up front, it, it certainly presents another um, piece of the puzzle, but it also makes it where over the long run you end up with a a much better uh, system. And so it's uh, so I don't want to call it a challenge, but it is something that's different about here in Detroit. There's a real sense of everyone should be involved and everyone should be heard. And and I, don't, I haven't seen that in a lot of other cities. Do you feel like Detroit's doing it right, paying attention to such things? So I think Detroit is doing it right, paying attention to it. I think there's a, a bumpy process of, of trying to figure out, you know, how to do it exactly right because there there are different perspectives there are different worries and and sometimes what's it's occurring more from a place of fear than a place of uh of uh kind of problem solving and so it's um i love to see the voices of of problem solving and 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 strategic planning uh prevail and and i get that the fear kind of motivates people sometimes uh, to, to and, and 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 there's real worry, you know, that that if someone isn't hyperbolic, then they won't be hurt. And so it's uh, so I get it, but I I, I like the nice, reasonable, uh, well thought out conversations in the middle that that get things done. So to that end, as we mentioned, you're involved in a lot of boards, including the Detroit Housing Commission and the Land Bank. I'm curious about what role you think they have in improving housing options in the area and whether enough is being done. Well, so I think um, they they have a major role. 
right? And so it's we live in a, a society that is, you know, throughout the country based upon capitalism. And so when someone says, hey, you should just make less money, then there it's it's much harder sale. <laughs> and, and so unless you were designed to be a public service. And so, you know, we have um, public authorities and public services specifically to provide those things that are good for society, um, but not necessarily commercially viable. And so, so using those um, those organizations to fulfill those needs is, is huge. Like to buy, fix up, and sell a house at a loss purposely to turn around a neighborhood. Go into a private developer and say, "I got this great idea." <laughs> and, and, they're not on board with that. Right, they're not on board with that. But you know, being able to use the land bank to do exactly that um, is, and that sparking a neighborhood that that creates this larger tax base and this this uh, you know viability that then brings in the private developers where it picks up at that stage where where it's viable. You know, it's huge, and so they definitely need to be doing more. But that means that they need more resources, and so and sometimes you know it's it's not all clear cut where where it's uh, because sometimes you put resources in and you always want to make sure that those resources are being used appropriately. And so I understand the hesitance, I understand the scrutiny, um, um, and so sometimes we have to make it more obvious the impact we're doing, we're having, and and the plan, and and we have to also be consistently successful. Because people have worries, and sometimes they act out of fear, and they say, "Hey, I heard this bad thing about the land bank, and it overshadows, you know, the the hundred good things." Or, um, you know, and and sometimes we're a victim of our own success, where people say, "I can't." They're slow to respond, and it's like, "Yeah, that's because now everyone wants to do it, and we have a thousand calls a day." And so, making sure that we are in touch with the community enough for that. Them to understand what's going on, and making sure that uh, that they can see and believe in our process. I think then the the clamor would be, "Hey, the land bank needs more money so that they can uh, they can operate uh, on a broader scale, or the housing commission needs more money so that it can do more affordable housing." But we have to build that trust. You used the word scrutiny a minute ago, and I think that's that's a good word. Um, uh, a, good, a good lead into this one. Um, <laughs> So the one one of the boards you serve on the the DDA is obviously instrumental in massive projects in, in, in town. But even though it's referred to as a quasi public body, I mean, it, basically the, the DGC's budget is almost entirely funded by the city of Detroit. Um, they're still able to keep a level of secrecy with regards to development projects. Up until the very, very, very last minute, um, I think I, I always go back specifically to the I think it's the 2017 deal to bring the Pistons downtown, and there was a conversation like the the DDA Finance Committee met, and the entire DDA board did not know that the, the DDA Finance Committee met. Or it, it was something along those lines. So this is a long-winded way of me saying, is there any wiggle room to opening up? Um, or being more transparent with regards to development projects that the D, that the DGC is involved in, and if so, what does that look like? So it's interesting. So I I don't know about the finance committee meeting. I'm not on it, so I I don't know that it was a meeting subject to open meetings act. I think uh, I think that by the way that might have been by design. 
<laughs> and so, but it's you, you get to a real odd intersection there where, you know, if I said, Kirk, the most important thing is that we understand journalism at all levels. And so if you're putting your resume out somewhere, you need to let us know first. <laughs> you say, well, I actually need some time to get, you know, to get that resume out, see if it's a job that I like. I can't just go announce to cranes that I'm looking around. Right. And so what are you implying? <laughs> and so we all have these things where there needs to be some some opportunity to plan um, uh, with with some level of of discretion prior to the public announcement. I, I, it's when I think of the Pistons coming down, if if there would have been, you know, a full understanding in, in Oakland County and in Detroit that there was talks to take the Pistons out of Oakland County and bring them here, I would imagine that Elbrooks Patterson would have moved heaven and earth to stop that. And so, you know, going out and saying, hey, we have a public purpose to actually let everyone know what we're planning, what our business plans are. There has to be some point at which you could have these conversations. And I don't know how that how that meets specifically, but I believe that organizations like the DGC and an MEDC, for that matter, were designed to allow that business plan to occur and then the public uh, um, scrutiny of, of that business plan when it's baked enough for public scrutiny. And and I think there were some real concerns uh, from what I understand specifically from you uh, with how- Oh, not just me. <laughs> you know, how far that line went, right, on, on the Pistons deal. Um, but, and while we can't judge history on its effects, right? We have to think in terms of, was this something that was uh, was ideal even if it hadn't gone so well, um, then then it's tempting to say it worked really well, though, right? <laughs> like we have 300 nights a year. The city is uh, is is has this concentration. Our hotels now work, and you have things to build on. You have all these nights um, to to uh, to come showcase uh, the city and get people acclimated to it, um, and and. You know, we're the only city that has all four teams uh, right there to cluster downtown. And so it worked really well. <laughs> but <laughs> but it's, it's obviously important that you scrutinize and say, did you guys get too close to the line on transparency versus um, disclosure and, and business planning versus uh, knowledge? And, you know, you're there to, to make sure. But I think there is a, a purpose and a need for people to be able to do some planning and uh, before the scrutiny. In fairness to me, just really quick, my job is not taxpayer funded <laughs> and therefore not subject to FOIA. Right. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so and the, the FOIA is because of the importance of, of, of public uh, uh, service and, and planning. But the concept of there being certain things that that, you know, there should be able to have some discretion for uh, just strategically. Um, that's that's something that I think the uh, economic development agencies were designed for, and they'll always struggle with. Right? It's uh, there'll always be people that say you may have done a little too much planning <laughs> and not enough announcing, and then some people will be like, 
do we have to really announce everything to give someone a chance to go and, and thwart it? It's a, uh, you know, if, if it, 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 we've turned it into a positive in the land bank where people know where we're going next um, and, and knowing that they're going to rush out and try to buy up as many homes and, and everything and land as possible. But there are certain times that, you know, if you say, hey, this is where I'm thinking about building a stadium. Somebody's going to buy a little house and try to sell it to you for $5 million, right? And so, and that's going to eat up a lot of taxpayer dollars or, or private dollars unnecessarily. And so, so that, that discretion disclosure line, I think we'll tussle with it for some time. We should take a moment of silence for that house, by the way. <laughs> right. <laughs> ah, it's, uh, you know, we don't know what happened there. <laughs> you know? Richard, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. We <laughs> talked uh, a fair bit about the economics of things. And before you were a developer, you were in banking. And I want to know what made you... Uh, make the move from banking to development and if you would have done it if you didn't come back to Detroit? So it's, um, that's a great question. It's, so I started off working for developers and then switched to, to banking. And I thought about always kind of doing development for myself. Um, but I, I think I would have been less passionate about it and less likely to make the jump had it not been Detroit. Uh, you know, starting into development could be a pretty scary thing. And, you know, all your family members look at you like, what do you mean you don't have a job anymore? <laughs> you can buy an old building in a bad neighborhood and fix it up. And so, you know, it, it takes that, that passion for an area to generally make that leap. And so I think uh, particularly because I, I came back home, then it, you know, I felt more comfortable doing it. What was it that made you buy that first old building in the first bad neighborhood? <laughs> right, so it's uh, I kept trying to convince people that that was Midtown already, and they kept saying, "No, I don't think this is Midtown." What made you return in the first place in 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 '08, and what were your impressions when you came back? So you know, I never stopped thinking of Detroit as home. You know, <laughs> so you know, I moved around the country for 17 years, going to college, then grad school, then job after job, and and every city was just some place I was. You know, until the next job came along, and people say, "Where are you from?" Oh, from Detroit, <laughs> and so it's a, uh, and so I always had an expectation of coming back. Um, I always felt like Detroit is an amazing city, and um, people not clearly recognizing it as such always bothered me. And so, um, whatever I could do to contribute to making that obvious that Detroit's an amazing city, I wanted to be involved in. How did that 2008 Detroit compare to the Detroit that you grew up in? It was it was so much kind of, uh, I guess, uh, less optimistic, more depressing. Um, you know, when when I went away in 89 um, to go to college, then, you know, there, there was still so much going on. Right. And, and people talked about, you know, all the bad things and there's plenty of crime and the like, but just vacant neighborhoods, vacant buildings, all those type of things everywhere. It just just didn't exist. You know, the, the Fisher 21 plant was still going strong as Car Carter Color or whatever. And so it's, um, and I think they still had to sign up counting how many cars have been produced. And so, you know, it, it what, what in the 80s people called a lack of vibrancy would be something that we still have some period to go to get back to, right? And so, um, it, 
the flip side of that is I came just as, you know, there were being a bunch of arrests and the economy was falling apart. And I felt like um, in a lot of ways that cleared the slate um, to be able to to build. And so when you have kind of this process where people say, we're fine, we have our methods and, and we don't we don't need any of these new ideas, then um, then you just kind of get you stay on that same treadmill. I think um, the combination of uh, the corruption probes and the financial crisis made people go, hey, does anyone have any ideas? And, uh, you know, people like Investy Trade were saying, we have some ideas. And, you know, Midtown Inc., uh, uh, UCCA back then, um, you know, had ideas. And, and those came to the forefront. And and the path was, was clearer for for people to operate and, and people to take some chances, try something new. How close are we to getting back to that period of vibrancy? Does it um, feel like we're there yet? No, it definitely doesn't feel like we're there yet. I, it, and I, real estate time can be so slow. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you know, I try to tell people that I believe that in 1992, when I was uh, interning in, in New York, that Manhattan was far more decimated <laughs> than, you know, than, than, than Detroit. Um, and now, 30 years later, people are like, oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> it was, it's been a 30-year process for that that city, uh, just filling up all those buildings and um, going as far as they've gone. And so I could easily see 10 more years before every neighborhood in Detroit has active development going on. Um, and, and, and it could be even longer. It's just, it's just such a long process. Development is still a predominantly white field, and I'm curious about what some of the barriers are to being a black developer and if there's anything that can be done to remove them, what's already being done to remove them. So Capital Impact has a really great program to, to uh, do an official mentorship and, and training. Uh, so much of development is really an apprenticeship. And so, and, you know, you can get a degree in real estate development, you know, at some places and you come out and you feel like you kind of know it, but there's so many other pieces. And, and, and a lot of that, that is, is kind of relationships as well. How do banks feel about you? How much confidence do they have in you? How much confidence do government officials have in you? Everyone wants to make sure that they are spending their time uh, and, and using their, their influence for something that's going to work. And, and, you know, with any business, there are a ton of dreamers who just go, I really love that. And so, and so people are kind of trying to weed through who's the dreamers and, and, and who are, and they start making kind of decisions based upon who they've seen do it before. And so in a lot of cities, you actually get a very different effect in Detroit. There are a very small number of developers doing all the development because people are like, that person is going to get it done. And it's kind of closed off here. Um, we try to keep the doors open and say whoever can do it and then train people to, to do it. Um, and so uh, from the strictly talent side, um, then you have to have the passion that says who would want to take these crazy risks. And then you have to have the money. And the, that's that's where you really get into a, a harder barrier <laughs> because, you know, I mean, EBR is setting up a fund to try to do it. But even. Um, even there, there's still a big first step, right? So if someone gives you 90% of, of what you need to get there, that's great. That's huge. But if if you're doing a $5 million deal and it needs $500,000 and 
and um and and equity in there and someone's you know funding you 90% at a low cost you still need to make a $50,000 bet which is you know a real <laughs> real number for all real Americans <laughs> and so it's uh you know it's 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 a real number and and you can have a solidly good job and have worked there for 20 years and look to you know your significant other and say I would like to bet $50,000 on this and they go no <laughs> No, that's not a good idea for our family, and so and so, so it's it's hard to make it small enough of a first step, um, yet big enough to transition into commercial and um, finding new ways to do that um, is is important. Um, some of the off the shelf credit programs make that easier um, because it helps those dollars generally come in on the equity side, and so and so you'll find that city after city is another reason that. People end up doing historic preservation because it allowed smaller developers, um, you know, without regard to to color. And most of the other cities that, I, and these were uh, white guys getting involved, um, getting in there and saying, "Part of my money is going to come from this state historic tax credit or from this federal historic tax credit." And so I have a smaller bet. It's still a big, scary bet, but it's an accessible bet. Um, and and so I think that's. That's always that first emphasis, that the economic and bringing people in, getting them trained in that and how they can do it is a, is a big deal. Um, and then, you know, spreading out around. It's, we also have even more of a deficit in the city of Detroit uh, than than black developers are women developers. <laughs> like, like, you know, it's a, so we we actually and that's just talent somewhere else not being applied to this to this problem you know and and so we need to actually um, broaden that to make sure that that there's there's huge representation and that all of the talent that could be being applied to 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 redeveloping uh, this this area is is accessed and and given um, kind of the the tools to get there what would you say has been your biggest failure in business, and how did you address that? <laughs> I, mean, I think I think the Detroit News made that very clear. <laughs> so, but but, but um, I addressed that by really deconstructing the process, um, you know, um, and and figuring out what I did wrong, you know, and what 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 risk couldn't be avoided, and and trying to take those lessons and 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 learn from them and say, okay. Things go wrong all the time in real estate. I tell people that the deals fall apart like every week <laughs> and every week you put them back together. And um, and that that has a, a greater level of realism when it's your money. <laughs> like I had been working for developers and be like, yeah, this is what we do. <laughs> and, the, and these are decisions we make. <laughs> and so then it's like, oh, this has to come out of my checkbook. <laughs> And so, you know, that that had a different feel for it. Um, and we stretched too far and um, and hit some real bumps um, in the road. And 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 so I ended up, you know, way overstretched. And I was trying to do development from from a distance. Um, so being very, very, very hands on after that has has been the change and always thinking that. If you run out of money, it doesn't matter if you were right, <laughs> and so, and so you have to both be right and not run out of money um, to be successful in, in in any business, but also but 
particularly real estate, where there are these big kind of you know expenses going out for years before money comes back in. And so I live in a way that is very conscious of not running out of money now. <laughs> Be right and don't run out of money is good advice for anyone, I think. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. It was great to talk to you. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Yeah, thanks for your time, Richard. Appreciate it. Yeah.